Welcome to Season 3 of Visiting's Radio Show. We've been meeting artists who work outside the museum and gallery systems. Uh, this is an archive that defines the genres of public engagement, public practice, and community arts. Carol Zoe is an interdisciplinary artist who has worked in a variety of communities across the U.S. We sat down to talk uh, in March 2020 during Carol's unique multi-year artist residency in Los Angeles's Little Tokyo. Um, yeah, so from, I think, roughly 2011 or 2012 to 2013, um, I worked with the Fiber Arts Collective Yarn Bombing Los Angeles. Um, at some point, I was the head poncho, um, <laughs> which just means I'm the person who answers the emails. Um, and so we did a lot of community education um, as a way of making public art on the streets. And so we're most known for doing um, like large-scale installations. And so the um, most iconic large-scale installation that we did was Cafe Am Granny Squared, where we invited 500 crocheters from all over the world to cover the museum in 8,000 granny squares. Wow. And I know because I counted all of it and put it into a <laughs> spreadsheet, so I can tell you that it was 8,000. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Looking back on that, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Um, we were crazy. <laughs> it's a beautiful piece. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think my thought is always like alchemy, right? Just how do collaborative projects happen? Um, because how that happened was um, two of my collaborators at that time, Arzu and David, they were sitting across the street of the Craft and Folk Art Museum where we were um, hosting monthly meetings. And David said, that really looks like a dollhouse. And why don't we cover it in granny squares to just like emphasize the fact that it's a dollhouse. And so Arzu made this like photoshopped version of oh. what that would look like. Mm -hmm. And we put it online and we said, okay, send us squares. But really we anticipated having to do all the work ourselves. Um, we did not anticipate that it would go viral to the point where we were receiving like packages every single day wow. containing dozens of granny squares and I just I think one thing that was magical and I think a little bit like not replicable in that project was just how a lot of pieces of it were so unpredictable and accidental you know I actually feel like with my other projects I've been able to predict outcomes a little bit more or I've been able to say this is what I want and like this is how I'm gonna go about like achieving that vision and this was just like it happened to us <laughs> yeah it happened to us and we had to figure out how to deal with it <laughs> um, the organization has since changed their name, right? It's no longer Cafe. Oh, yeah. It's the Craft Contemporary. Right. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I don't know why they did that. I do know that 
when we were there, I think Suzanne Iskin had been the director for a couple of years. And so she was interested in the ways that contemporary artists were engaging craft. And that's why she offered us a space to meet in the back room, Mm. um, you know, to support your local yarn bombers. Um, And then after we did that facade project, um, they started thinking of the facade as art. And so now there's a permanent... Um, mural by the artist shrine on that facade Um, yeah so I think this is all towards the move to like I think rebrand or to think about an understanding of a craft that's more connected with contemporary practices Mm. like you know public art collective art um, dialogic art etc from there you you moved yes I did move um I finished my MFA at Otis um, College of Art and Design um and during that time I started working with Rick Lowe um and I originally wanted to work with him because I told Suzanne Lacey I said I can understand how these public practices flourish in California, but I'm from Texas. Um, you know, I'm You're originally from Texas. Yeah. Born I, and raised. No, not born. Oh. Actually, my fam, I was born in China and my family moved around for a bit, but I always say I was raised in Texas. Okay. Um, where in Texas? In Round Rock, Texas, which is 30 minutes north of Austin. Oh. And so like my understanding of art was books that I could check out from the library, right? And my understanding of progressive politics was nada, because George W. Bush was president um, when I was growing up in Texas. And so I said to Suzanne, I said, I know how these practices can happen in public in California, but I want to know how it happens in Texas. I want to know how Rick Lowe does it. And so, of course, she has him in her phone. <laughs> she, like, calls him up. She's like, Rick, I have a student <laughs> who's interested in working for you. Um, and at that time, he had started this project in Dallas um, called Translation. Um, and when he started it, it was a series of six markets that were meant to run for a year um, to create a platform of exchange for the neighborhood's residents. Um, and the neighborhood was very unique because it was a black and Latinx neighborhood um, that had in which refugee resettlement agencies had resettled a lot of refugees starting in the 90s because of the inexpensive housing. And so the statistic is that I think there are about 30, 40 languages spoken in the neighborhood on every given day within three square miles. Um, But then that became an issue in terms of neighborhood cohesion um, with so many people from so many different backgrounds um, living in highly marginalized conditions. And so the markets were meant to be the site of exchange and the site of showcasing community work. Um, So I would volunteer with the markets. I did cool things like paint, (laughs) paint white cubes, you know, Um, and then 
by the time that I left California, they had moved into a storefront and they had raised enough money for an artist in residence to be there for a year. And when you say they, um, is it Rick's group or the, the community? Uh, Rick's group. So the project okay. team, um, because he had assembled... Um, a group of people to really help him shepherd the first phase of the project. Um, It was funded by the Nasher Sculpture Center, but it was only funded for a year um, through the Nasher. But Rick... the Nasher is in Dallas. Yes. Um, And so Rick had assembled this group of Sarah Mercuria, who was the project manager and like really instrumental to the project, Greg Metz, Cynthia Cynthia Satoff, and you know, together they were able to raise the funding. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And uh, and that that became the point where you became staff. Or how did that work? Uh, you say you volunteered, but weren't you also? Didn't that become your job in a sense? Um. So. I look back on that time as I did a count with a friend the other day. I concluded that I held four jobs. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. By that, I mean I was like de facto janitor, you uh-huh. know, like scraping gum off the floor. I was like de facto communications person, you know, de facto like fundraising person, um, right? Like de facto, like programmer, um, actually like doing the program, de facto community outreach, right? Just, I think as an artist wearing a lot of these different hats, Mm -hmm. but what I actually appreciate about translation when I compare it to my other experiences is I appreciate that there's a certain flexibility in the roles that you're allowed to play instead of everyone thinking like this is my job description and I'm not going to do anything that's outside of my job description Mm. um you know it yeah blessing and a curse to have four plus jobs (laughs) oh it is somewhat the nature of nonprofit organizations. Oh yeah, it wasn't right. a nonprofit at the time, which once again I think made it more flexible. Oh. Um, in terms, because I've thought about this a lot. Like I've thought about how the nonprofit structure actually, like, intervenes in or affects the way that artists can do their work. Um, and artists can like do grassroots community-based work. Right. Um, and I do think that because translation was not a nonprofit but a fiscally sponsored project, mm-hmm. that there was just a lot more flexibility. Um, so like before we started this p- podcast, we were talking about kind of this like fear endemic in nonprofits of who, what would a funder think, you know, oh. or like, ooh, how does this go on a grant report? Um, and I think to be able to have some flexibility with that is really important. But then, you know, like the flip side, right, is that it's a lot of labor. Right. Yeah. No, I keep on thinking about like why an artist, right? Why do I orient towards the world as an artist as opposed to an urban planner or a social worker? Um, even though one could argue that the work that I do looks very similar. Right. Um, and I think part of it is 
like this tendency towards being a generalist. Hmm. So this tendency towards, okay, I like am following this train of thought or, you know, I want to accomplish these ends. This means that I have to learn how to get a permit to attach like God knows how many pounds of yarn art to the (laughs) facade of a building, Right. right? Um, How much fire retardant do you have to buy? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or, okay, I'm working in an Arabic-speaking community now, so I'm going to learn how to say, hello, how are you, in Arabic. Um, And I'm going to show up to people's houses as if I'm their social worker, but I'm also not their social worker, (laughs) right? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I definitely relate to this idea of, I think, like, a hundred jobs and I think being able to move fluidly depending on what the context um, or what the project requires. A lot of that work was done with blood, sweat, and tears. Um, Not necessarily with funding. And I got to the point where I just thought, oh my God, like, I need to be on the freaking funding side of things, right? Like what's important is moving resources and I want to know how to move resources. And so I had met Gail Issa, who was the then executive director of Asian Arts Initiative. Um, and there was a program director position open. And, and they're based in? Um, in th- they're based in Philadelphia. Um, and so I think it was with that in mind, well, two things. One was thinking about how do I move resources? Like, how do I get into a position where I move resources? Um, and the other was just like, I never felt so even though my family's immigrant generation, I never felt comfortable being in a community where like people didn't have a college degree you know like I have a master's degree and my undergrad is from an Ivy League university right so in a sense Columbia uh Cornell Cornell yes Sorry, Cornell. it's fine <laughs> um my bad. so in a sense I just thought and your you, parents are educated as well yeah right? my They're dad professors. has a PhD um and then a master's my mom has a master's they're like educated in China you know you know right so like for me there was this class difference um there was also like racial difference right where um even though i'm non-white i was not ethnically related to anyone um Mm. in the neighborhood interesting and so i really felt that my mandate was to try to figure out how to work in my own community like to work in asian american communities um and to think about what working for social change looked like in that perspective and so asian arts initiative to me was an opportunity to a like really engage with asian american discourse and cultural production um and to engage with anti-displacement issues that were happening in Philadelphia's um, Chinatown, which is where Asian Arts Initiative was located. Um, And so, yeah, I made the move to Philadelphia to focus on those issues. And how, how, how did that go? You were there 
also for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, I was there for two years. Um, I learned that I am. Um, so this was actually a good exercise in belonging, right? Because I think in a sense, when I talked about like leaving because I wasn't reflected in the neighborhood and I didn't feel like I should be in that savior position in the neighborhood. Um, I think Philadelphia presented a different dilemma of belonging where I realized I was like, I like this place. Also, this place is bleeding arts funding and I don't understand what to make of it. Like, it's mind blowing to me to go from having to like beg for $5,000 to managing like a half a million dollar grant, you know? I mean, that's mind blowing to me, right? It it makes me upset to this day. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, so I just realized I was like, I'm not from here. You know, Philadelphia has a lot of arts funding, has a lot of activism. I have a lot of really wonderful, nice things to say about Philadelphia. And I just thought, I'm not from here. You know, like I'm raised in Texas. I Mm. lived in Arizona. I um, first stint as a kid. I was in California for six years. And I have a lot of like deep community connections in California. And that really is the region that I relate to the most. And I also thought about, it's really interesting being on both sides of the table. Mm. Granted, the table probably has more than both sides, right? But it's like interesting being deep on the ground. And it's interesting going from that to being in an administrative role where you're trying to figure out equitable funding. You're trying to figure out how to steward this half a million dollar grant, you know, in a way that supports grassroots work. And I'm not going to lie. I did not feel more empowered. Hmm. Interesting. Stewarding that many more resources, Hmm. you know? I And I think that was the moment where I felt like either I am better when I'm on the ground, um, you know, just like recognizing our skills and strengths, mm-hmm. or that we have to recognize like the power of people who are working on the ground as like where the power comes from. And I mean, whatever, I still believe that people should be resourced, right? I don't think that's an argument to be like, okay, like grassroots power is going to pay your bills. Um, You know, but I think that was also an important learning to me. Mm. Um, And I, I often feel because I have some friends who are program officers and foundations um, who are progressive funders who are trying to make that change Mm -hmm. um, for, in terms of how we resource our communities, how we resource art and social change work. That's good. But I often wonder if they feel empowered, you know? Hmm. Or if, like, they also feel, in a sense, like a disempowerment despite being in that type of decision-making position. Right. Yeah. It sounds like a powerful place to be. I know, right? You would right. imagine. That's like one of my fantasies. I'm like, I love. I want to be Oprah, basically. <laughs> I want to tell people they get money. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so right now, um, last 
October. October um, 2019. Yes. I began a two-year um, fellowship um, through Enterprise Community Partners um, in their Rose Fellowship Program. Um, and so Enterprise Community Partners um, is a funding intermediary advocacy body as well as um, professional development resource for community development corporations. Um, so I want to say like they're... Um, their national organization and one of their counterparts is LISC, um, for example. And so they've been doing this Rose Fellowship um, for, I think, I, I'm going to get this wrong, but for decades. Um, but they've been doing it with architects and embedding architects in community development corporations to see what that type of relationship could engender. Um, and so this is the first year that they're working with artists and residents. Um, and so I am in residence at Little Tokyo Service Center. Here in Los Angeles. Here in Los Angeles. <laughs> so you're back. You've been back for several months now. Yes. And you're about to hit your six-month uh, mark yes. with this residency. So how's it going? Um, I feel really supported, and I think I need to pinch myself um, because I'm not used to feeling supported. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to something going wrong. I'm okay. used to having to really fight for what I need <laughs> and believe in. Um, okay. So I'm well, parsing. Yeah, yeah, that's honest. Feeling supported. Right. Um, and I am, I mean, every community is different. Um, and so I am parsing actually what it means to be in a very well-organized community because I think Little Tokyo is that. Um, they have an amazing history of, you know, fighting against gentrification, fighting to stay. Um, and I think when I was in Dallas, because communities were not well organized, and honestly, I talked to Maria Rosario Jackson about this, um, it was a lot easier. Can you explain who she is? She's very important. Um, she, <laughs> she, um, she advises numerous organizations on creative placemaking um, as an evaluator. So I think she advises Kresge. She advises National Endowment for the Arts. She's on faculty at Arizona State University. Um, yeah, and I'm sure she works with a slew of other organizations. But yeah, I was talking to her about this, and she pointed out that communities that are not as well organized will actually welcome you more. And so I did feel that, actually, in Dallas, I f where there was just so much need that people said, come on in, like, we'll show you what to do. By the way, there's 50 things that we need um, and that we need you to do. Um, and I think my experiences in Philadelphia and now Little Tokyo have been, oh, like, I don't have to do these things by myself. Um, you know, mm -hmm. um, there's actually a huge supportive infrastructure and I just need to figure out 
where I exist within it um, mm. and how the projects that I want to pursue relate to it. You know, I've finished my like 500 like coffees period, right. um, you know, where mm. I think I feel comfortable. I've like identified people whom I would really love to work with. I've identified issues in the community mm. um, and I have a few project proposals in the works. Can you give us one example or? Um, I'll give you two. Two? Give us, give us two. <laughs> okay. Um, so there's this woman who is a resident at Kasahewa, which is the first affordable housing complex that Little Tokyo Service Center built um, in Little Tokyo. And she is retired. She's an artist. She has this book um, that is amazing. It's called Artworks and Inventions. And it's all... I think 80% of it is drawings about urban infrastructure. And so she has drawings for electric bubble cars. She has drawings um, for double-decker. This is my favorite because I ride the bus. So she has a drawing for a double-decker dash bus with solar panels and a sliding glass door. And I think it's wonderful because in a way it's a commentary on her everyday life navigating the urban infrastructure of downtown los angeles right where the buses are so crowded that yeah some of us are thinking about double decker buses you know or um there's so much traffic so much pollution that she's thinking about solar power and wind power and electric cars right so like these inventions even though they don't directly say like i need transit remediation they actually do um, in a really beautiful poetic way and so one of the projects i want to do is to do a series of community workshops inspired by her work where we make 200 inventions for little tokyo and i want a gondola i've been thinking that i want a gondola Uh right but i've been thinking why do i want a gondola um and i think it's because yeah i want to imagine car-free alternatives right and waterways are right a car-free alternative you know so i'm thinking about like what are these real issues that we can surface mm-hmm. when we actually work in kind of this whimsical fun and futuristic way um so that's one project i want to do nice Thank you. Number two. Number two. And I would also welcome you workshopping this with me um, because it's not fully formed yet, but I'm fascinated. So I I was doing the homeless count, um, which is... um, Citywide. Yeah, citywide counting um, the homeless on the streets for um, one night every year. And so I finished up at around 11 at night and I was exiting the back of the building through the garden um, of Kasahewa, right? And so it's like dark, right? It's moonlit. I'm wandering through this garden and then whoop, someone is cutting roses in the garden. And I've been fascinated by this garden. I've just been wondering, okay, who uses this? What's going on? And so it turns out that it's this Cantonese woman 
Um, so that was also exciting to me because um, my family speaks Cantonese, um, a dialect of Cantonese. And so I started talking to her. And the thing is, so I grew up with my mother gardening, right? So I recognize plants like she grows bitter melon, she grows bok choy. I recognize those plants, but I had this moment where I was like, I don't recognize the plants that you're growing. And so, um, she and I have become friends. Um, she has given me a list of all the plants that she's growing in the garden and she's growing these really like unthinkable plants when we think about community gardening. So she grew from a seed five years ago. She went to the market. She bought a passion fruit. She like took the seeds. She planted it into the ground. There's like an entire wall of passion fruit mm. on the back of the garden, right? She's also growing sugar cane. She's growing um, rose apples. I didn't know what a rose apple was. Yeah, should look this up. Okay. She's growing loquats. Um, let's see. She's growing sour apples. Um, she's growing golden berries. I think she has a lychee, um, like wow. seedling in there. So she's growing all these plants that for her are plants that she's used to, um, in Guangdong, but, and that she learned how to like care for in Guangdong and she's transplanted them here. Um, and for me, I just like, I would not imagine a community garden with sugar cane and right. passion fruit and jasmine flower, um, and like lychee, um, and, <laughs> and sour apple. I, I um, want to understand something. Yes. It, is she is that her job or does she live there and she's no, she just lives she's there. taking this on? She lives there oh. and she just does it. So if, yeah. if she didn't do this, would that garden be empty? I think so. She gardens oh. about seventy percent of what's there. That's amazing. And okay. so yeah, there's another gardener that I have yet to meet. And so, so she she has a relationship with the actual gardener who's getting paid to No 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 no. no. Um, there's another gardener who lives in the building. Oh, okay. So there is no um, like official. There's no official gardener, okay. I don't think. And so I've just been thinking. Because of course, yeah. what I'm what yeah. I'm interested yeah. in is like, an architect designed a garden for this place, mm -hmm. but no one came up with the funding to like have someone maintain this garden. Yeah. Right? And so yeah. the community has taken over. Well, which is which is a better scenario. Maybe it was designed to be a community garden plot. Oh, okay. okay. I th I think so. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, but I'm just fascinated by what she's growing. Yeah, yeah. And so I kind of want to figure out the poetics of that, you know, what it means to like work with her on that, what it means to relate to um, food access needs on a community level and like cultural food access needs, right? Um, because the residents in affordable housing complexes are not necessarily Japanese. Right. Um, yeah, they have a lot of food needs that actually aren't really served by being in a community that commercially um, is predominantly Japanese. Um, yeah, so I, that's like 
I, I'm at the seedling stage of that project yeah. <laughs> right now. Actually, it was because she couldn't get some of these fruits from back home. And my memories are of her asking my grandmother to like smuggle seeds for her <laughs> in the suitcases <laughs> um, when my grandmother came to the U.S. for a bit. Um, yeah, and I was talking with Wataru, who is a staff member at Little Tokyo Service Center, and he brought up something I think that was very poignant. He said, even though we culturally see these um, like fruits and vegetables in the market, mm -hmm. we don't engage with them in the ground, right? Right. Like, and that's also erasure of cultural heritage. Yes, it is. To not know like what a lychee seedling looks like. Right. That concludes this episode. Thank you very much to Carol for taking the time to drop by and participate on our podcast. You can learn more about Carol at uh, http colon French slash French slash this life record recorded dot com. Let me say that again. It's basically this life recorded dot com. T-H-I-S-L-I-F-E-R-E-C-O-R-D-E-D.com. I'm Alan Nakagawa speaking to you from my living room in K-Town saying thanks so much for listening to Visiting's radio show. Thanks.